Hello, everyone. Welcome to Better Health While Aging, a podcast that gives you strategies and tips about improving the health and well-being of older adults. We discuss common health problems that affect people over age 60, the best ways to prevent and manage those problems, and we also often address common concerns and dilemmas that come up with aging parents and other older loved ones, like what to do if you're worried about falls or safety or memory or even the quality of a senior's health care. I'm your host, Dr. Leslie Kernison. I'm a practicing geriatrician, so that means I'm a medical doctor specialized in geriatrics, which is the art and science of modifying healthcare so that it works better for older people and for their families. Today's episode features a special guest, and we're going to be talking about common challenges related to helping aging parents. My guest is Carolyn Rosenblatt. She's an attorney and a registered nurse, and for the past several years, she and her husband, Mikal Davis, who is a geriatric psychologist, have together specialized in helping families resolve difficult issues related to older parents. And they have a website at agingparents.com. Carolyn is the author of The Family Guide to Aging Parents and several other books about assisting older adults with legal, financial, and life issues. She also writes a column about aging for Forbes.com. And over the past few years, I've read many of Carolyn's Forbes columns, and I also read her book recently, as I was writing one of my own articles about advanced planning for legal and financial issues. So I'm thrilled that she was able to join me today to share some of her insights on how to manage some of the most common challenges and dilemmas that families often struggle with. Carolyn, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Leslie. I thought it might be nice for us to start with you telling us a little bit about your practice, because it seems a bit unique to me. How did you come to specialize in families and aging parents? Well, thank you for asking. It is a bit of an odd thing to be specializing in, but I looked at what my life was going to be like after I finished a 27-year career as a lawyer, and that had followed 10 years of nursing, and I said, what do I want to do? What am I good at? What do I like? I had always liked working with older people from the time I was a child and did some volunteer work in a nursing home. So it seemed natural to try to find a way to use the many years of experience that I have to give people some insights and information and help them go to one place rather than running around and searching hundreds of sites on the internet. So I founded agingparents.com and asked my husband to join me because a lot of the problems are emotionally laden, and it's been great. I have enjoyed it. It's been about 10 years since we started, and we find that a lot of families just need some answers, and, and we're here to help them do that. So did your practice as an attorney before that particularly focus on older people, or had you just sort of found yourself thinking either about somebody older in your own family or fielding questions from friends? Well, initially, I think I was inspired to enjoy older people because of my own grandmother, who was a tremendous resource for me in my life, a real guiding light because I had a mother who was mentally ill. So my grandmother was a beacon, and she really guided me into nursing, which was the career she had started. And then uh, I just sort of liked the idea of learning from other people's wisdom. Older people were attractive to me. My law practice was not necessarily focused at all on elders because I represented people, individual people who had been injured. But I live in a county where there's a predominantly high number of seniors. So I had a lot of older clients. And I saw what happened to them, you know, when somebody was 
arguing with a 93-year-old, it really offended me. So I just thought if there's a way to help people understand how to respect the aging process, how to support people as they age, and I can use these skills I have to do that, that would be great. Oh, great. Well, uh, I love that idea of you thinking about advocating for your, your older clients and trying to help their families approach them in a way that's most uh, constructive. So um, so you've had this practice for, for 10 years. And these days, what are the most common types of problems that people ask you to help them with? And I was also kind of wondering, do you usually start off by hearing from an older person, the person in their 80s or 90s, or more from their adult children? Almost invariably, the questions are brought to me by the adult child. Sometimes it's a niece or nephew, but it is typically someone who's middle-aged with a loved one in their lives who is older, maybe 75 or 85 or 95. I talked to somebody the other day who's got a relative 103. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it's the, the adult in their lives who is feeling an urgency to do something about a combination of health problems that have emerged. A lot of times it's dementia. I would say the most common issues that I see in this practice are issues around money and relationships. Mm. So say a little bit more about the issues around money. Like what's some examples of particular concerns that people bring up to you related to money? Toughest problem is diminished capacity for making financial decisions. And as we know, as people age, they're mental processes may be a bit slower, but in the absence of disease, they're perfectly capable. People get impatient with them when they're younger, but it doesn't mean that the person can't get to the right answer or the right decision. But there is a tremendous number of people who have some kind of brain disease, dementia, Alzheimer's disease, something that we, we see more and more often in the earlier stages, beginning to affect families. And that's when they get alarmed because mom has forgotten to pay the bills or she's making crazy decisions about, you know, taking up with some stranger she met on the street or she is not using her money wisely and is giving it away or spending it foolishly. These are some of the things that I hear about. And then it brings into focus all of the reasons why that's happening. I certainly hear a, a certain number of similar concerns, you know, people approaching me because a parent is, is you know, maybe making a uncharacteristic financial choices or that there's concern about the bills or other people possibly taking advantage of them financially. Mm -hmm. And I find that sometimes people use this term that they're worried that their parents might be becoming incompetent. Is that? Yes. Sort of and, and, you know, incompetent is really not a legal term. It's just a kind of a layperson's term, but it, right. it means different things to different people. In the law, we talk about capacity, the capacity to make proper decisions, the capacity to decide things for oneself. So there's a crossover between what the, what the doctors might say and what the lawyers need to hear. But generally, competency and capacity are kind of related terms. When we, we look at a, a person's ability to do what's in their best interests, then we are talking about either their competency to make financial decisions, for example, or their capacity to make financial decisions. It's the same. But when those mm -hmm. abilities erode, um, it's, it's really no man's land because there are no markers that tell you exactly the time when someone is no longer competent or no longer has capacity to do what's in their best interest and what's best for them. Because, you know, aside with all that, we, we have people making foolish decisions when they're perfectly competent to do so. 
Well, exactly, yeah. right. You know, people have a right to uh, generally have a right to make decisions that their family members disagree with unless, you know, we think that perhaps they're becoming uh, impaired permanently or temporarily and that that's part of uh, what's driving that. Yeah. At least that's part of how I think about it and, and talk to families about it. Well, well, I find that when people, uh, so people are often kind of worried that an older person is losing or has lost the ability to soundly make decisions or make them as soundly as they used to. Mm-hmm. They ask me what can be done. And part of the complaint is often that that older person is refusing to talk about it and refusing to to go get seen. So what's your approach to helping families in that? Because I feel like they they often go together, the kind of family's concerns about the person's abilities and this complaint that, you know, they won't talk about it, they won't go to the doctor. That's right. Or they won't accept help of any kind. Mm-hmm. That's really, really a problem for people who are the adult children, recognize that a parent is impaired in some way, whether it's physically, mentally, emotionally, or all of those things. They want the parent to be safe, and they're trying to get them to do something, either have help at home or go to a facility to live or let someone take over the checkbook. Whatever the the issue might be that the family is feeling some urgency about, the parent says no. They, they change the subject. They don't want to talk about it. They get angry. They shut them down. And this is st- still the parent-child dynamic, whatever the relationship has been. It doesn't matter if mom's 95 and, and you're 65. You know, there's still that mother-child thing going on. And it's intimidating for people. So the the parent most always is resisting getting help or making a change out of fear. That's the driving underlying emotion. And what's the fear about? Okay, well, think about it. You know, if you get older, maybe your hearing isn't so good. Maybe your vision isn't so good. Maybe you don't walk so well anymore. Maybe you can't remember things as well as you used to. You're losing control. The control that you had over your life as a younger, stronger person is eroding. For a lot of older people, there is an absolute terror associated with losing control and the thought of being put in a home. And if you ask adult children if their parent has ever made them promise anything, They've extracted a promise from their children. Please never put me in a home. Now, why do they why do they fear that so much? Well, in their day, remember if they're 85, 90, this was long before Medicare and Medicaid ever existed. And the kind of home they have in mind was a sort of warehouse, some horrible place where people without money went to die. And there were not there were no regulations over these places. There were no there was no government oversight to speak of. It was dreadful. When we enacted the laws uh, with Medicare starting in the mid-60s and evolving into Medicaid and other protections state by state, we certainly have better regulations than we did back then. But older people who are living independently don't know that. They just still have this nightmare image in their minds that they're going to lose control and be thrust into some place where, they, where they're just left to die. And, and that if you really speak to that fear, I think that that is, is really what drives people away from help. Now, there can be a lot of other reasons, too, but that's a big one, and I hear it a lot. Mm-hmm. Well, that's so interesting. I mean, so it sounds like, um, in your experience, older, uh, a certain generation of older adults often has this um, perception um, and image of assisted living homes or just other places to get help that is, you know, maybe a little bit outdated. Very much so. And out of touch with reality. So do you find that once, 
you find a way to to get them to maybe visit some places or learn more about it, that that alleviates some of that fear and distress? It can alleviate fear and distress, Leslie. But I think part of what happens when people resist help is that if there is a disease process going on in the person's mind, brain, Mm -hmm. or their spirit, that does not yield so readily to logic and reason. So the fear may be based in things that are not at all accurate, but you can't necessarily talk a mentally ill person out of their fears, nor can you use reason and logic with a person who is developing dementia. You have to use things that are more emotionally connected to them and not try to argue with or use logic to persuade them because it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. If, well, that is certainly true. Yeah. So for, for older people who perhaps are in the earlier stages of um, a dementia such as Alzheimer's, which which I find is often the case when families come to me, especially if the person is, you know, in their late 80s or not, but not always. Mm-hmm. And actually, sometimes, you know, we find that it's, it's other things that can be treated mm-hmm. or reduced. Right. And so I try to, to convey that, mm-hmm. you know, that that uh, it's important for us to look because we might be able to help them think better. Sure. But but um, if, if there is a certain element of that change in memory and thinking abilities mm-hmm. that is not going to be entirely reversed, mm-hmm. what have you found helps to address that, that fear? Well, I'll share a little story with you about a real case to illustrate that you just have to use something they like, you know, to, to help persuade them. I was contacted by a gentleman who was probably about 50. His dad was around 80. And his father was in trouble for a lot of reasons. Both of the parents probably had dementia. But in order for the son to do anything to help his father, he had to have a power of attorney. The document that allows someone to act on behalf of another with regard to finances. And it's a fairly straightforward form, but the father absolutely had been refusing to let his son get this. He wouldn't sign anything. He wouldn't talk to him. And I suggested that he bring him to my office I said, maybe talking to a different person would be useful. I said, what does your father like? And he stopped for me and he says, well, he likes chocolate. I said, good, bring some chocolate bars. I said, is there any kind of music he likes? He said, yeah, he likes classical music. I said, okay, put him in the car, tell him you're coming to see a person who really wants to meet him and give him some chocolate and play his favorite music on the way over to my office. So that put his dad in a pretty good mood because he was munching away on his chocolate and that's something he really loved. And the music affects people at a very deep emotional level. It's quite different from where our logical brains go. So he brought his father to my office and I explained to him very gently that in order for his son to help him, he had to sign a piece of paper and give him permission. He said, I do? I said, yeah, you know, this is the law here. You got to have somebody who's written permission like he used to sign maybe when he went to school and he needed to get some time off to go to the doctor or something. He said, oh, okay. So he signed the paper and his son took him to have it notarized and that was that. I think that story just illustrates a little bit about some persuasion that you use that has to do more with how the person feels than how they think or what the rational processes might be about. Oh, I love that suggestion. I mean, I think you're entirely right that people are often so used to trying to persuade other people through logic. And the irony is that it doesn't even, I mean, I think if we think about it, it doesn't even work with our spouses and close family members earlier in life. Right. It's true. But we still tend to try it, and oh, especially yeah. and then later in life when people are experiencing these strong emotions of anxiety or fear mm-hmm. or, or, you know, frustration or wanting to feel that sense of autonomy. Mm-hmm. 
and then also potentially slipping a little bit yes. in their mental abilities. It's so especially important to find ways that do not rely on that that logic and trying to explain something to them and get them to, to see it. And I do find that often reminding families, you know, I, I really think that you're not going to be able to reason them out of this yeah. and we have to find other approaches. But I love that idea of leveraging music and of creating kind of a feeling of comfort and safety and relaxation. Of course. And there's research on this. And there were some studies done with people who had Alzheimer's disease who were refusing to take a bath. Unfortunately, this is not that uncommon. People sort of get crazy about bathing. Uh, who knows why, but it's not uncommon. People putting their hands all over your naked body? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, whatever it is, they don't want to, they don't want to take their own bath, much less with help, you know, when they're about to fall. So, you know, they did a study and played particular kinds of music that people enjoyed, and there was a tremendous increase in the amount of cooperation that they were able to get from the people who had dementia to go ahead and take their bath. So I tell people to use music whenever you're trying to talk somebody with dementia into anything. If they have a favorite kind, get lots of it and use it a lot. They'll probably forget that you used it last time, so keep trying, you know. Mm-hmm. In terms of, you know, that story you you mentioned about getting the form signed, mm-hmm. and it, it is so important for for people to to have done some paperwork so that others can step in at some point yes. to to help out if it becomes necessary. Mm-hmm. But my understanding is that a person also has to have uh, the capacity to understand the form that they're signing. And so do you ever run into situations where you're not, where either you aren't sure the person has capacity or should families be concerned that the capacity of the older person might be questioned if they have them sign these papers at a point where there was already some concern about the person's memory and thinking ability. Oh, yes. I've certainly run into it. I know estate planning attorneys run into it all the time where they're not sure if the person does have capacity. There are some estate planning attorneys who call me and ask me to help evaluate the individual. There are different ways to address this. First of all, you have to look at what you're trying to accomplish. If you're trying to prevent elder abuse, which is a very common and horrible problem, financial elder abuse, Uh, and you're using the document to protect the elder from getting ripped off or becoming victimized by predators, there are many of them out there, then, you know, I tend to lean heavily in favor of if there's doubt, if I can interpret that doubt in favor of the person who needs protection, then I will go ahead and find that there's enough capacity there that they get the basic concept. Now, if they are on a continuum, let's let's think of it this way. If they're on a continuum, at the very end of the of the continuum, the person is perfectly intact and perfectly capable of everything. At the other end of the continuum, spanning what could be years, the person can't make sense of anything. Okay? So there's totally incompetent and totally competent on both ends of that scale. In between, there is an endless gray area. When the person begins to lose capacity for some things, maybe they can't remember to pay the bills, but do they know who they want to be in charge of paying them? Yes, that person has capacity to sign that document, okay? Do they understand that they're vulnerable and that they might need someone to help make decisions about their checking account, but they don't know how much is in it? Yes, that person still has capacity to accept the help of someone that they're going to appoint as the agent on that directive. If the person is completely out of it, has no idea what's going on, couldn't tell you really where they are, and if you say, sign here, they'll sign anything, that person probably doesn't have capacity. So it's a judgment call, and there are many concerns about it. There are several things we do to try to help 
determine whether someone has the ability. Uh, testing is one of those things, psychological testing. But if it's just you and mom and dad, my advice is to get going on this document signing as early as you possibly can so that you don't run into the questions and possible accusations later while you got them to sign something when they didn't know what they were doing because that happens too. Mm-hmm. It certainly does, yeah. Well, I've sometimes tried to help families who are asking me questions about you know, capacity and whether an older person does or doesn't have the ability to make certain kinds of decisions or complete forms. Do you know of any good resources online that explain this for families? Because the last time I looked, which was you know, maybe a year ago mm-hmm. at this point, I was surprised that there was actually not that much. And there is the uh, there are these wonderful handbooks, which you, you're probably aware of and may have, have read, that were the result of this collaboration between the American Bar Association and the American Psychological Association mm-hmm. on determining capacity for older adults. And they created a handbook mm-hmm. for clinicians and another one for attorneys and then I think one for judges. Mm-hmm. But I was sort of surprised that there weren't kind of, um, you know, layperson versions. There aren't. To explain some of the, the essentials. Right. And the difficulty with that is that the professionals who created these, and I, and I know who they are, and I still use them and I quote them in my own books, they're looking at this from the professional's point of view. And their concept is really, well, what do you do if you're coming to the lawyer? Can the lawyer have you do X? Or if you're going to see... Uh, another kind of professional, can they do why? And I'm saying, look, you know, for a lot of people, it's just, should I take the car keys away from mom or should I let dad keep using the credit card? It's much more basic. I think what you need to look at is whether the person understands the consequences of giving someone a credit card. If they've made one mistake and fallen for a sweepstakes scam or a telephone scammer, or any rip-off artist who shows up at the door, it's time to stop letting them have unfettered reign. It's just too dangerous. Adult children feel guilty about what they think is taking away an aging parent's independence. And I say, independence for what? Elder abuse? Financial rip-offs? Is that a good kind of independence? Or are you protecting them from their loss of independence in making competent decisions? So it's really the question of what you mean by independence. I think it's far better for the adult children to step in and try by whatever means, gentle persuasion, using whatever manipulation you need to do to keep them safe, to get that checkbook away, to get that credit card away so that they don't fall victim because the the predators are waiting for them at every turn. Yeah. It's certainly helpful to think about kind of, you know, what are the stakes? And it's true that it can be devastating to lose, you know, money. Yeah. Often money that that older adults may not have a lot of mm-hmm. and that they should be keeping for their own needs or, or for, for other purposes. And then I also tell people that, you know, to kind of push a little bit, you know, at least short term while we work on figuring out just what is going on and hopefully getting them, you know, evaluated to better understand what might be... Uh, driving the difficulties yes. that the older person is having. Now, earlier I was sort of saying that often the complaint is, you know, the person won't come in. So um, can you offer a few suggestions for the listeners if they're concerned about an older person who's, you know, refusing to talk about it and refusing to, to come in? Let's say they're not able to come and see you in person. Mm-hmm. What have you found is, is um, kind of next best? 
Yeah, I work with the adult children, and they have to have a plan. So even if the elder is going to be involved in a conversation later on about what to do, getting them help or getting them examined or whatever that is needed, I have to have them develop a strategy. In one case recently, I was working with a family who had a caregiver. The gentleman was 85. The wife has dementia. She's in her 80s also. There were three adult children. They had not ever really taken care of their parents, and this was a family well-to-do, so they they were kind of all sort of, you know, capable of going their own way with their own means, and they they just didn't quite know what to do with their parents. There had been a caregiver hired, but the caregiver had gotten so far into these people's business, it was alarming. She was doing way more than caregivers do. You know, she knew more about the dad's, she knew more about the dad's finances than the children put together did, and they wanted to get rid of her. And they didn't know how because there was a sort of codependency relationship between the gentleman and the caregiver. So it wasn't she was stealing from him. It just was addictive codependency, if you want to call it. It was not healthy. She was very, very uh, um, unkind to the mother who had dementia. And I don't know. it, It just was a mess. And they didn't know how to get rid of her. And they tried and tried. So I met with them separately. And I said, look, this is the approach. This is what I think is going to work with your dad. He wants to have a family meeting. We'll go do that. And here's some of the things to not say. Let him set the agenda and we'll see what comes out. So we did that. And then I met with them again for the next meeting, which was going to be the arranged interview for exiting this caregiver. So it all did work out in the end. But part of what was successful was that the children had a strategy, and they were not used to working together at all. But in having a strategy meeting with them, they were able to get onto the same page. And I think for people you meet who are trying to get a parent to do something they don't want to do, which is what this was about too, because they didn't really want to get rid of the caregiver, even though he said he did. In truth, all his behavior was contradictory to getting rid of her. So it's getting the parent to do what they don't want to do. You have to think of the best ways to approach that person from an emotional standpoint, from a logical standpoint, if that's workable still, from whatever it is that's going to push their buttons. Most most older people do not want to be a burden to their children. Right. And that is sometimes a nice angle to use. Well, look, I know you don't want to burden me, Mom, but I'm really worried because... You know, and then you you get into your thing, and it's really the emotional sense of sort of guilt they would feel if they were burdening their children that is the leverage rather than you know what you keep falling too much, and I think you really ought to get somebody in here to help you that doesn't right. that doesn't work, yes, it's sort of like I'm concerned, and it would help me if you did this rather than you should, you should, you should exactly always um, always start with these you, always start with your own concern mm-hmm. your own right concern. leading with your own concerns, mm-hmm. and it sounds like also part of what you're pointing out is that. Uh, even if you can't get the person in to see a professional, that it's it's worthwhile to do the work of kind of stepping back and thinking about, you know, your strategy and coordinating with your siblings. And that often it helps to get, um, if you can find it and afford it, some professional advice from someone who has experience in helping families negotiate uh, situations with um, older parents. Of course. And, and I'm not sure how many, you know, specialists there are like you with your particular background at the intersection of, of law and uh, elder care and nursing. On one of the previous episodes, we had a geriatric care manager mm-hmm. talking um, a bit about her work. And, and I found over the past several years that often people have never heard of a geriatric care manager and they don't realize that there's this 
profession Mm -hmm. of people with social work or therapy backgrounds who have, you know, specifically focused on older adults and their families and the kind of challenges they encounter and that that's, you know, a resource. Absolutely. And to help, you know, kind of sort out what's going on and how you might approach it in a constructive way instead of sort of spinning your wheels in this cycle of uh, frustration. That's right. And failure to get the elder to do what you want them to do. You know, that's that. But geriatric care managers, are, there are some words of caution here. In California, we do not license this field at all. There is no regulatory agency of any kind. There are no licensing requirements. There, there are no parameters around which one knows what they can and can't do. So I say be a good consumer. I put that in my book, you know, how to choose one. But I would say this. If you have a frustrating problem and you need to have someone come visit you to assess the home or to figure out what mom or dad or grandma needs, that's a a good resource. The healthcare problems being predominant, I would say try to find somebody with a nursing background because some care managers are RNs. If it is mainly social issues, that they're isolated or they're not going anywhere or they've got mobility problems or whatever it is that's more sort of non-medical, then your geriatric care managers with a social worker background or even gerontology background with some kind of social work in it is good. But to be a good consumer, you don't want to give your money to somebody who does not have and has never had any kind of license to do anything. I think that's a little scary. There are a few out there, you know, who've had years and years of experience as gerontology backgrounds, but they have to work with a social worker or a nurse. Mm-hmm. And that's what they right. that's what they do. So if there's somebody in the arsenal of people with them that's got the license, great. Without that, I think I've seen some bad ones who really are not doing any good and are not helpful. And it's helpful, I think, also to, you know, maybe get references from uh, from others if, of course, if possible. Of course. And that is a good resource. So, you know, they're, they'll come to your home. Some of them are available 24-7. I got one from my own mother-in-law, who's now 93. She was living alone in Palm Springs. I live in Marin County. That's a long ways away. The nearest other relative was two hours away. She was a widow and certainly not in perfect health. What were we going to do if she had a fall? And she did have one. And, you know, when the phone rang and it was the paramedic on, on her phone calling my husband saying, you know, because he says, hi, mom. Well, this is Joe Blow, paramedic so-and-so. Oh, my God, oh, no. what happened? You know, your heart stops. But uh, we realized, you know, she had a couple of friends who could go to the emergency room with her. She was okay. She had fainted. But uh, that's really not so safe when there's nobody there. Plus, it's going to drive you nuts as the adult child if you don't know what's going on. So um, much against her wishes, we hired and paid for a geriatric care manager in her neighborhood, who was an RN, by the way, to go meet her, assess her, and just kind of be there in case something ever happened. Well, something did happen. She, she's uh, hypertensive. She has irregular kind of bouts of blood pressure spiking up going too high, and she had an episode and had to go to the emergency room. Who was there? You know, the geriatric care manager. She stayed with her through the entire time, called us, texted us, and emailed us regularly for the 24 hours that it took to get past that crisis. We were very grateful she was there, and my mother-in-law's response was, well, why did you have to pay all that money? (laughs) (laughs) Worth it to us. Yeah, no, it's true that especially when, you know, there's some kind of health emergency or crisis, which eventually there will be for most people. It's it's really helpful to have somebody who can be there with the person. And if you don't have family um, 
or friends who are really willing and able to do a lot because I think sometimes people rely on their friends, but it can be a heavy load for uh, for friends. You're right. And the friends, if they're the same age, who says they're going to be available? You know, we were, we were very lucky that the two friends who went with her the first time she fell were able to drop what they were doing, go hang out in the emergency room, bring her home and put her to bed. But, you know, you look at them now, one of them is completely incapacitated and the other one oh. is on her way out. So those are not people you can count on forever. The longer your aging loved one lives, the less likely their same age peers are going to be a reliable source of help for you. Yeah. I think of that sometimes when I look at people's powers of attorney, if they have done them for healthcare or for finances. Right. Is that sometimes they've chosen friends who, who are their age and they might have done that 10, 20 years before. Um, or just pick somebody they were close to. And that one does, you know, sort of have to bring up a little bit that, you know, it, it might be good to have someone who um, who you're quite sure won't be having a health problem in the next few years when you might need them to uh, to step in. Good advice. And provide assistance. Yeah. Or to have at least a backup, you know, to be sure to have uh, designated some alternates. I think it's very important to designate alternates. A lot of people put their adult children on those directives or the power of attorney document. And that's fine as long as that's someone you trust to carry out your wishes. But unfortunately, when we look at things like financial elder abuse, the most common abusers are family. And what's mm. what's the tool they love to use? The power of attorney for finances. Oh. So it's good to have a backup person who's outside the family if there's any doubt. And where does doubt come from? It comes from the history of behavior of that person that you're planning to appoint. If they have ever had a drug or alcohol problem, if they've ever had a gambling problem, if they have poor health themselves, pick someone else, please, please. <laughs> you don't want a big fight going on in the hospital corridor when there's a crisis, really. Right. So in your book, you often make recommendations for how people can and should plan ahead. Yes to avoid many of these sticky situations that later come up when there are concerns about an older person's ability to manage mm -hmm. uh, in the home or, or their money. What have you found is helpful to people in, in helping them do this planning ahead? Well, first of all, there has to be communication. And this is an issue because a lot of older people are sort of secretive about their finances. Finances are a big one, okay? I mean, either they have the money to pay for care they might need or they don't. But either way, everybody has to know what's up. What do they have? What assets? I mean, I talked to a person whose parents had lived in a house for 50 years. She thought they had money, but she wasn't sure because they'd never talked to her about it. And they didn't want to sign a document. No power of attorney. We got that done. But it was a, an ordeal for her. And she had two parents who both had a problem. So she was, you know, the only person who could be responsible. But I think it starts with communication. The, the adult child needs to have a talk, beginning of a series of conversations with the adult, with the parent or grandparent, at a certain time. You just pick a date when you turn 65 or when you retire or when you turn 70 or whatever. But it shouldn't go past that age because as you wait for something to happen, something could already be happening before you know it and then it's too late. And I've seen that too. It's too late. They just never got it done and it's too late and then they got to go to court and get a conservatorship or guardianship in some states they call it. So it, I would say pick a date. If the parents don't initiate talking about what they've got and what they want for their future, then you pick the date. Okay? And, and this is how you approach the parent. Listen, you know, I'm 
the only person responsible, blah, blah, blah. I'm the oldest child. I'm the whatever. Pick your excuse. (laughs) We really need to have a conversation about your future because I know that anything can happen. And I wouldn't want to feel completely incompetent and ignorant about what to do. And I really need you to help me, Mom, Dad. And I wonder if we could do this the day after your birthday when everybody's going to be in town. Okay, so that's an approach that sets it up. There's a specific time. There's a specific date. There are people you might need to be in the conversation. And if they're paranoid and don't trust anybody, then do it one-on-one. But, you know, the point is someone has to initiate the conversation about what the parents have and what they want or you are going to be miserable when the first crisis hits you. And like you say, you know, it's almost inevitable. Most people have something at some point. You know, they have a stroke, they have a heart attack, they fall, they get in a car accident, whatever it is. You know, the other people around them deserve to know how to help and, and where to find things. So it sounds like the idea would be for every older person, you know, at some point. And actually, uh, recently, as I was reading these these books about advanced planning, I came across this book by two attorneys called Five at 55. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was nice to just make it so early that you can't, you know, that you're really unlikely to be worrying about decline at that point, just, you know, very, very early. Yeah. It almost normalizes it, right? Oh, you of know, course. 55. Go ahead and do your five documents. Of course. Or t- that's it. And, you know, 10 years ago when I started this work, I thought, well, wait a second. I don't want to be a hypocrite. I got to get my kids involved. And they were, you know, right, exactly. they were like in their t- early 20s at the time. <laughs> Mom, you're not old. I said, well, you know, I might be someday if I'm lucky. So let's start the conversation now. So I did. And they- I always tell people that, you know what, any of us could get, you know, uh, injured crossing the street, you know, hit by motor vehicle or something like that. Right. And, you know, and other people might have to pay our bills and make some decisions for us. Yes. So are we equipped? So it sounds like the, the ideal is for people themselves, especially if they reach a certain age, 55, 60, 65, you know, or older, to do it as, as kind of part of their life planning, make sure that they've addressed these issues and equipped somebody, uh, their adult children or someone else to, to step in and help. Yes, and they need paper. They, they have to have the legal right written down somewhere so that someone can act on their behalf. So we talked a little bit earlier about durable power of attorney. We talked about healthcare directive. Those are two very essential things. They're both free. You can download them on the internet if you don't want to go see a lawyer. They'll at least be basically adequate. And it is shocking how many people do not have these things. You know, you know, fewer than half of all people do any kind of estate planning. I mean, that's not a very good statistic for our country. Fewer than, no, fewer than yeah. half. That means rich people, poor people, people in the middle. They just don't do it for a lot of reasons. But I think that if nobody does anything, at least do those two things. Download that durable power of attorney form on the internet and have a nice conversation or two or ten with your aging loved ones and have them sign it and get it notarized. In California, it costs $10 to have a signature notarized. Big deal. There are notaries who will come to you, who will come to your parent if they can't get out or don't want to. That's a big one. And then the health care directive doesn't require notarization. It requires witnesses. But it's also simple, free. Doctors' offices have them, hospitals. There are more of those floating around than there are powers of attorney, mostly because the mm-hmm. medical profession has supported people getting those done because the doctors, as you, don't want to be stuck with decisions that nobody knows how to make. Yeah, no, there's certainly been an effort these past several years to help people with advanced care planning. And, and now there's, you know, most recently, there's going to be a Medicare reimbursement code for it, yep. which hopefully will help. But it sounds like you're, you're saying that ideally people, older people themselves would address this, but that if they don't, 
it sounds like it's better as an adult child instead of kind of leaving it to your parent to to handle it when they get around to it. It's better probably to be proactive and in a supportive way to bring it up and ask them to do it and especially point out that it will help, you know, you, the adult child later. Yes, of course, of course. And, you know, there are several... If you need to help them out and coming back to that idea we were mentioning before to consider framing it as, you know, do it to help us rather than you should have all your papers in order. Very much so. And a lot of elders don't understand the importance of those pieces of paper, even if they've done estate planning. And I have found a lot of older people did their, who, who did do estate planning did it 30 years ago in some other place. And maybe the person they appointed is, is no longer alive. The lawyer who drafted the will didn't do a power of attorney. Whatever the thing is, they don't necessarily have that. So it needs to be a specific part of the conversation that someone has initiated, either the adult child or the elder in the family. And one of the things that needs to be discussed in these conversations, a series of them, I hope, is have you done estate planning? Well, yes, I took care of all that 10, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Okay. Do you know if you have a durable power of attorney? Well, I think so. Could we see it? Make them show mm. you. If you're the appointed person, you better know that you're going to be saddled with that responsibility. You need to get ready. And particularly on the healthcare directive, Maybe they've appointed you, but if you haven't sat down and said, what do you want to happen if you have dementia and pneumonia and a urinary tract infection and several other things? Do you want us to try to keep you alive under those circumstances? You need to really get down to it. And again, you can get help with those conversations, but you need to really pinpoint the details as to how they involve the adult child because it's a two-sided thing. The right. power of attorney is the person, the older person, presumably, appointing someone else to act on their behalf when it comes to money. Great. Well, you got to know what they want. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, it's funny because I, I think people actually often get partly bogged down or stalled out because they're not sure how to address all these details. And so sometimes I wonder, well, you know, is it is it better for them to have designated somebody I think sometimes we tell them, you know, be sure to work out all these little details too, and that they, they kind of just find themselves overwhelmed by that. Now, one of my colleagues at UCSF, Dr. Rebecca Sudor, is a geriatrician who has done a lot of research on advanced planning. Mm -hmm. Several years ago, she created an easy-to-read advanced directive for California that I used to use with my patients. Mm -hmm. But then she created this additional website called prepareforyourcare.org that um, didn't create a directive, but instead has these videos that sort of help older adults um, think about uh, the, the decisions that they'll have to make and what it means to have a decision maker. And I thought that was such an interesting project. And when I talked to her about it, she said, well, you know, we realized that people, if they haven't sort of done this thinking beforehand, they really can't do the forms and that we wanted to create a structure to help them kind of go through the most important things to, to think about. Mm -hmm. So, so sometimes I think that's one way to help people is that uh, if we don't break it down into little doable pieces, it seems really easy for people to get overwhelmed. It's overwhelming. This stuff is complicated. It's not easy to understand. It's written by lawyers and lawmakers. It's just, you know, kind of strange language with words in it people don't use every day. I can understand people getting overwhelmed. And the bottom line is something is better than nothing. Uh, you know, have something, have a durable power of attorney for finances, have a healthcare directive. Then if at least you've got that done, 
you can have the conversations to refine what the meaning is. And, you know, as I said, my mother-in-law is 93. She's been in the hospital a number of times in the last couple of months. Her health is not great right now. Uh, unstable blood pressure is leading to many difficulties. And I, I said to her, I want to talk to you a little bit more about your health care directive. I said, do you know what do not resuscitate means? And she said, well, that's, you know, you don't want to get a lot of treatment and be kept alive, you know, if, if there's no real hope for you. I said, well, no, not exactly. So we got into the details of what resuscitate means. And she didn't understand that if your heart stops and they get it started again, that's resuscitation. But, you know, the giving you care that you don't want if you're going to go anyway is not resuscitation. So she wanted me to talk to my sister-in-law who lives nearby and would be the first person to find her in trouble about that. And we will have a conversation about that detail, you know, because th those fine points are overwhelming. They are difficult. Right. You're right. And all the support people can get, great. Get it. Go to that website. Use the tools. It's wonderful. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm glad you had that conversation with her, but I do feel like, you know, I encourage people to ask their their doctors for help with that. And the advantage for that is that at least older adults have Medicare, which does pay for for at least you to see a uh, clinician. Well, thank goodness. Where you can hopefully get, get help. Whereas I think, you know, there seems to be no real setup to help people address the financial and legal aspects. No. I mean, there they really have to do their own research or find a, a lawyer. Or actually, I think there there are some options for legal assistance for people who are low income. Yes. Uh, you know. In a lot of communities. And people can find out about that through their local agency area on aging. But um but yeah, I think it's uh, often adult children can help a lot by taking the lead on this. And you're equipped with your nursing background to bring this up for your mother-in-law. But but I, I hope people will find a way to get help if they uh, find it overwhelming because it can be quite hard to be in that position of describing what these things mean to your family. Of course. And I think talking to the physician is the most direct way to do that, to get a, some definitions about what that means. What does it mean to resuscitate or not resuscitate? People need to know that. And, you know, it's just so handy. I happen to have that information, but most people probably don't. So I think talking to the physician is an excellent way to get that conversation clarified. And as far as the legal goes, if people don't have very much money, they will qualify for legal aid or legal assistance for elders or whatever it's called in the county where you live. Those resources exist all over in urban areas in California and suburban areas. Uh, outside of California, it's it's not as clear where to find them, but the Area Agency on Aging is a very good resource. Another really good resource if someone has dementia is the Alzheimer's Association. It can be any kind of dementia, but they, the social workers and other resource people there know how to refer to get the other questions answered besides what do you do with this person you have to take care of now. Their website, by the way, at alz.org is a really, really good resource if someone isn't sure about capacity. Mm, that's good. To yeah, know. It, I'll definitely link to that in the yeah, uh, show notes. ALZ.org, because it talks about the 10 warning signs of dementia. And, you know, it doesn't define capacity precisely, uh, but it does help you tell if someone has what's so-called normal memory problems versus the warning signs of Alzheimer's or other dementia. It's a very, very good resource, very deep. That's a well-funded worldwide nonprofit that has some of the best resources I've ever seen. Uh, but as far as figuring out capacity, just, uh, you know, as a final word on that, it's a legal decision about whether someone has capacity to make decisions. It's a legal decision. And lawyers rely on 
psychologists, neurologists, and other physicians to help them make that determination. But ultimately, it's the lawyer who decides. And I think it's very important that people recognize that you might have to see a lawyer to get a read on that question. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's especially true if there are issues related to um, transactions, you know, legal transactions. I mean, I think in practical terms, people people are there kind of, you know, again, trying to decide how much should they push or coax or, mm-hmm. you know, um, so so people, I think, are often considering the question um, earlier without the involvement of lawyers. And you must have come across this too, but I, you know, I come across a lot of families where there's an older person who seems quite impaired and everybody has sort of learned to work around them. Mm-hmm. You're right, but, you know, and it's clearly, and it's, you know, it's past that early stage where you could debate about capacity Mm -hmm. and um you know and as long as you know you don't have to sell a house or something everyone just sort of works around it yeah but it works around it which i have uh, mixed feelings about because in a way i sort of wish that it had been you know assessed earlier in a in a more you know careful thorough manner well it's it's but but, uh, i think people aren't sure how to do it earlier earlier on you're right and it's denial on the part of adult mm-hmm. children. They look at the parent. They know that they're impaired. They know they can't think straight. They know that they're asking them the same question 15 times in the same, you know, setting where they've had dinner or whatever. They, they just don't want to go forward with accepting that this parent is not the same parent they used to be. It's very hard because they're losing someone. I mean, it's grief. It's sad. Right. It's, you know, frightening to see someone not being your parent anymore and knowing that they're still alive and breathing and functioning in a lot of ways physically, but they're not the same person. So that sort of letting them continue on in this impaired state that gets very, very dangerous is not that uncommon. And I find it really sad because, you know, the person needs protection. They should not be driving. I'm sorry. Take the keys away. Do what you need to do. Use the courts as a last resort if you have to, but don't just let them go out there and kill somebody because they didn't understand you have to stop at the stop sign anymore. I mean, also the thing with money, you know, they let them continue to use their checkbooks and their credit cards and they'll give away a million dollars and be destitute. And everybody goes, gee, I wish I'd thought about this sooner. Yeah, I do too. Well, so we've talked a lot about dementia, but I think often people are are sort of disagreeing or having a conflict with older parents and the parent actually does not have dementia, although they um, we know it's normal for people's certain mental processes to slow a little bit mm-hmm. as uh, as people get older. And so sometimes we have adult children who are quite concerned and and are, are just, you know, very concerned. And maybe what the older person doing isn't optimal, but, you know, they actually have still the mental capacity to make those those decisions. And um, so what do you recommend in those stages to kind of help reduce the risk of, of financial difficulties? Like what can families do if, if you're just concerned, but your, your parent doesn't have dementia, but you'd like to sort of create the conditions to preserve financial resources and help put the family on the best footing for successful aging over the next mm-hmm. coming years? Mm-hmm. I think it's important for parents to understand, aging parents, to understand how much things cost. Remember, they grew up during the Depression, many of them. They have a distorted concept of value because of that. Um, I know that my mother-in-law still thinks a good tip is like a dollar. You know, Mm. they don't necessarily have a sense of how frighteningly expensive it is to receive care. What you can do sometimes is use an example of somebody they know or another relative. Well, you know, when Uncle Bill had his stroke, 
he had to have a caregiver and the caregiver was there um, 20 hours a week and it cost um, $25 an hour. And I'm going to add that up for you, Dad. This is how much it costs for six months of care. And So kind of helping them budget. Do the math. Do the math. Show it to them. You know, they they are not necessarily taking into account that they themselves could ever be disabled. They just don't want to go there. So I think that adult children have to help them walk through that process and tell them the money, how much it costs for everything. How much does assisted living cost? How much does a nursing home cost? How much does a home helper cost? How much does adult day services? So that they know what the numbers look like. And that sometimes can spur the conversation. If you ever needed this, what would we do? Well, I'm not going to need that. Well, what if something happened? You got bonked on the head. That's my favorite, you know. Don't go there with a fall or or dementia. Never say those words. What if you got bonked on the head? You know, what if something fell in a store and hit you in the head? That could happen. You know, so that sometimes will allow them to tell you what they possess. But... You just have to keep at it, I think, with parents. You wait till they're in a good mood. You bring it up in a natural setting when they are still fully capable of having the conversation. And, you know, it's always friendly and non-threatening and reassuring. You know, I don't ever want to take advantage of you, Mom, but I wouldn't want anybody else to take advantage of you either. And I sort of feel obligated to try to protect you because as you get older, boy, there are those thieves out there. And then tell them a story. There's one in the paper every week, you know, about somebody that got ripped off. Right. You know, the National Center on Elder Abuse is a goldmine of stories. So go there if you're looking for some data, you know. Yeah. Well, you have also, I mean, I think a lot of compelling vignettes and stories in your book and in your column. Yes. Which I think, you know, just they sound very real world and that might help give people something concrete to to think about. Well, we're almost out of time. And I thought, you know, maybe to close, if it's okay, I'd love to ask how you and your husband have planned for for your own future because I think you said that you have adult children and yes I do and I've got a, a daughter and a son they're both in their early 30s 32 and 30 now and when I started doing this work I as I mentioned earlier I came to the realization that I better start having these conversations with my kids and you know their their parents are both professionals we've saved money and have retirement funds and all that stuff but you know they might not know how to handle all that so part of it began by sharing with them everything we've got, the whole the whole ball of wax, how much money, how much is in savings, how much is invested, what's it worth, uh, you know, and do we have loans on anything and what do they cost? Teaching them about how to handle our resources is part of it. Now, things could be very different 20 years from now if I'm still kicking around and they need to know, but at least if I were to disappear from this earth in the next week, they would have a pretty good idea about what to do. They know where to find the passwords. They know where the bank accounts are. The older one in particular, who is the one I chose to appoint as the agent on both the durable power of attorney and the health care directive, she knows where to find everything. So mm-hmm. the conversations about if we were in a plane crash were how we put it because we do travel for business and my husband and I work together. Um, the other thing was I used the tools that you alluded to that the American Bar Association has on its website. They are, in all forgiveness of my professional organization, they are terrible at marketing, okay? Mm, They're mm -hmm. awful. They don't let people know these things around. Some of the brightest legal minds anywhere in the country have gotten together and created these great tools and nobody knows they exist. There is a consumer's toolkit. 
Oh, yeah, for our healthcare. It's quite good. On the American Bar Association website that gives you scripts. These are the questions. There's a quiz you can give your kids. What if this happened? Or so something's worse than death. Mm-hmm. And I gave them the quiz. And I'm happy to report they both got to be plus or an A minus. So they know what I want. And they know what their dad wants. But they've been quizzed and briefed and had these talks. They both understand. I share stories with them all the time about other people. It happens to be the nature of my work. Mm-hmm. But if it's not the nature of somebody else's work, you can use stories that you read from other sources and share them with people, you know. Right. But they've got a clue. It would never be easy, but they've got a clue about what to do. So I'm assuming you have a, a durable power of attorney for healthcare and then one for for general, which often covers finances, although sometimes people do them them separately. And then, you know, one thing that I hear people sometimes express concern about is they don't want anybody else taking over unless they're impaired. And so I was just wondering, did you choose to do one of those springing ones where there are criteria for for declaring you not able to, to manage things or not? And what's your advice to people on how to handle that part of it? All right. Well, we're talking about what's called a springing power of attorney. That mm-hmm. means the power of attorney is not in effect until X, Y, and Z happen. And the other kind of power of attorney, which is a kind you download off the internet or get from a lawyer otherwise, is effective immediately. So if you die, you know, next week, but you're sick for a week, somebody has the power to, you know, take care of business for the week. Mm -hmm. And they don't have to wait for anything to happen. They just can step right up to the plate and start doing things for you as you've appointed them to do immediately. I don't like springing powers of attorney for one reason, okay? The criteria involve having been declared incompetent usually by two physicians, okay? Mm -hmm. So that means a person has to go to two separate doctors of their own free will because you cannot drag them there. And the doctor has to, first of all, know how to assess them for the capacity that you're talking about and be willing to commit to that in writing. A lot of doctors don't want to do that. Yes, I'm aware of this because I get asked to do it sometimes. And then I've also sort of seen other doctors' notes. And sometimes they... uh, they do it very casually, actually. They just Too write, casual. you know, Miss So-and-so doesn't have capacity for her affairs, and they, they don't say anything else. And I sort of think, shouldn't you document a little bit more how long you've known her, what you observed, you know, how you how you uh, reach these conclusions? And I'm not sure how well that kind of notice holds up in different arenas, but I've, I've uh, come across a fair bit of that, too. It creates terrible legal problems because it's not really a, a good assessment of the person. You know, the hard data you can get from a neuropsychological exam with testing gives you some measurable criteria. And since I'm married to a guy who does that kind of work, that's helpful because then you can see what their memory is like compared with other people who are similarly educated and of the same age. And and you get a you get a normed test that says yes, they're in the 10th percentile or the 90th percentile. So you know if they've fallen really far below, then there's something wrong here. But then the person who takes does those tests, and it only takes a few. You don't have to be there all day for this. They do a few tests. They do a couple of interviews at different times of day with the same person because you know people have good periods and bad periods. Then you have something solid to work with. And that will stand up in court if somebody contests it. You've got some data there. You've got something just better than a two-line opinion that doesn't say much with a doctor's signature after it. So, right. but, it, but again, I don't like springing powers of attorney for that reason because people who are impaired don't want to go to the doctor. They think they're fine sometimes. Then what do you do? 
So it sounds like you would encourage people normally to do um, a power of attorney for finances that's not springing, but in that case, you have to choose the person very carefully. Absolutely. Because you're giving them, you know, the ability to take action. That's right. You have to trust that they won't if you're still able to or that, um, are there are there things people can do to kind of create some checks and balances? Like, Yes. Yes, there are. I mean, for, some people don't trust their adult children, so they'll have a committee of three friends. Mm. And the three friends better be younger, but the committee of three has to be a majority in favor of whatever it is that is going to be decided upon. Close the checking account, pay for this. That's a great thing for people who don't have kids or don't have kids they can trust. I think having a fiduciary, a professional licensed fiduciary in charge, especially where there's family conflict, is good. But that fiduciary needs to answer to someone. So the most responsible adult child or friend or appointee would be the checks and balances for that. I think having a bank trustee looking over the transactions is a way to do checks and balances. Mandating that anybody who's going to handle your money gives reports on a monthly basis or quarterly basis to everybody else who would be involved with that money, like your heirs. That's another way to create checks and balances. Transparency being the key here. Right. So uh, so it can potentially be advantageous to have a durable power of attorney that's not springing, but set up some kind of structure around it so that others are able to provide some oversight because everybody behaves better when there's transparency and the possibility when it's easier for others to look over what you're doing precisely and ask for you to to explain it yes and the, we don't want to tempt people that's right and the advantage of having a durable power of attorney drafted by a lawyer is that they can draft all that language in they can say, yes, I'm appointing my son, Bill, to be the agent, but Bill is required to provide monthly reports to Mary, Susan, Tom, and Jack, my other children, so that they will know what is happening with my estate at all times until the end of my life. Mm-hmm. You know? Great. Yeah. Mean, those are checks and balances. Yeah. That can be done. And that can be really helpful. Well, Carolyn, thank you so much for all these insights and suggestions and stories. Now, if people want to learn more about your work, I know there's your book, mm-hmm. which I've recommended on my website before, The Family Guide to Aging Parents. And then your website, I believe, is at agingparents.com, right? Yes, it is. And for people who are in the professions and work with aging clients, I have another book for them called Working with Aging Clients. And that's a guide for legal business and financial professionals. And that gets into the capacity issues in great detail. That is published by the American Bar Association. They just made that available on Amazon. Oh, Um, wonderful. Yeah, so that's now up on Amazon. And the Family Guide to Aging Parents is at agingparents.com and also on Amazon. Great. Well, I'll make sure there are links to make it easy for people to find that. And we'll also link to some of the other resources that you suggested during the talk. So thank you so very much. Thanks for having me. So I hope you all enjoyed those insights from elder law attorney Carolyn Rosenblatt. For more helpful advice be sure to check out her book, The Family Guide to Aging Parents. And to find links to that book and other resources that we mentioned in the episode, be sure to visit the show notes page for this episode. You can find those at betterhealthwhileaging.net. Click podcasts in the main menu at the top, and that will take you to a list of recent episodes, including this one. And of course, if you have any questions about something you heard in the episode, please post your questions in the comments section under the show notes for this episode. Chances are that many other listeners will be wondering the same thing, so when you post your question on the site, that allows me to provide an answer that can be helpful to the entire audience. 
Please feel free to use your initials or you can even make up a name for yourself if you'd rather remain anonymous when you post your question. Last but definitely not least, if you've been enjoying the podcast, please support us by leaving a rating and review on iTunes. So um, I've been doing the podcast for several months at this point, and uh, I've actually heard from several people by email telling me that they appreciate the podcast, which is wonderful, but it would also really help if you could then leave a rating or review on iTunes because this makes it easier for others to discover our show on iTunes and that'll help the podcast continue indefinitely. And I would love for the many people who are interested in health or aging or family caregivers to be able to give this podcast a chance. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Dr. Leslie Kernison, and I'm looking forward to joining us for future episodes.